This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political podcast. Today is Monday, January thirtieth, two thousand twenty-three, and my name is Markus Kipp. Today we're bringing you a gripping account from the current women life freedom movement in Iran that was sparked by the killing of Masa Gina Amini in the custody of the Islamic regime's morality police last year in September. After several weeks of uprising, the media coverage in Western countries has become more silent due in part to the extremely repressive acts of the government in which several people have been killed and many imprisoned. The regime has also made a deliberate attempt to control communication channels, including the control or shutdown of the Internet, making it more difficult for news about events to leave the country. The movement, however, is still very alive, as you will hear in the following. And it requires ongoing international attention, support and mounting pressure against the regime. A few days ago, we received an audio recording from activists and urban scholars in Tehran who have bravely shared their absorbing experiences and analysis of the ongoing uprising. They delve into the symbolic character of the hijab, provide historical and geographical context to the movement, and discuss the challenges they are facing in their fight for freedom and equality. These speakers have chosen to remain anonymous, using aliases for their safety, as they've been repeatedly subjected to repression. We are in awe of their strength and determination in the face of adversity. A big thank you to Neda, who arranged and produced this podcast, and everyone else involved in making this episode possible, and whose names we cannot credit officially here. So let me hand over now and join us as we delve into the heart of the movement and explore the impact it's having on cities and its inhabitants. It's 3 p.m. on the 30th of September. The city just recently had a massive protest that was invaded by the police. I'm seeing a friend at a cafe who was injured at the protest 19th of September, held for the death of Mahsa Gina Amini. I just arrived back in the city. There have been changes, not because I haven't been in this city for a few years. Things have changed since she knows this. I can't tell if these changes are inside of me as a woman or in my relation with the city. I'm not wearing the compulsory hijab today. I have the scarf on my shoulders to pretend it has fallen off my head by accident. I'm in a hurry, but no cabs are stopping for me. I'm thinking to myself, Maybe they are not stopping for me because I'm not wearing a hijab. I start walking to the cafe instead. It's about a 40-minute walk. I'm a little nervous, but on my way, I pass some people who chant, Woman, life, freedom. Hearing all this encouragement makes me feel less nervous. Clearly, breaking the compulsory hijab law is why I'm hearing the chanting. I feel supported. I finally arrived at the cafe slightly late to see my friend who is waiting for me. We talk about the news and everything that has happened recently. About the day that he was close to being arrested and our friends were arrested. 
We decide to start a study circle. Urban Rage by Mustafa Dikesh has recently been translated into Farsi. We choose this book to start as the first book for study sessions. We exchanged goodbyes and that was when I decided to walk around the city without my compulsory hijab as often as I can from now on. In the next few weeks, as I am walking, I fold my hijab into a scarf around my neck instead of having it on my shoulders. One day, as I am at a bakery, the baker tells me how happy he is that women are leading the protests. He even adds some extra pastries to my shopping bag for free. The women who are breaking the compulsory hijab law smile at each other when they pass through the streets. Now, after four months, I can say that many things have happened in all the cities of Iran, and many big protests have taken place. The injuries of the Iranians is well-known news around the world. For many days, the streets were seized by the protesters. Many creative works have been produced. On a large scale, Iranian protesters are still getting arrested and killed. Our study group has finished urban rage and I don't wear my scarf on my daily books anymore. You're hearing my words from Tehran. I choose Neda as my identity in this podcast and I'm going to be your host in this episode. I have begun this episode by sharing lived experiences of the city's exceptional times. Because of security reasons, I keep the identity of myself and my guests anonymous. And throughout the episode, I identify each of my urban researcher guests with pseudonyms. So today, Sana, Aba, and Nika, three of my friends and I, will talk about urban resistance during the ongoing movement. And it is important to mention that this discussion focuses on the genome movement from an urban perspective in Tehran, despite the fact that it is a movement that is widespread in most Iranian cities, including Kurdish and Baluch cities with particular characteristics. Our talk will begin by contextualizing this uprising through a historical review. Then we discuss the geographic aspect of that. And then in the third part, we talk about the materiality of this movement within the city of Tehran. At the end, you will hear Azadi, a revolutionary song composed by anonymous music students at Tehran University of Art. So, let's begin by discussing the context that lead to Jina movement. About the issue of political Islam has risen since the revolution in 1979. How did this state come to employ Islamism to oppress people and impose new laws? I think if we want to understand the role of Islam, political Islam in the constitution of, in the making of this um, current uprising, we need to go back all the way to the very early formation of the Islamic state. I mean, we need to go back to 1979 revolution. So if you go back, you can see how the formation and constitution of the new state, the new regime, is bound up with the controlling of women bodies and basically sexuality in general. So um, in the few days after the revolution, you can see uh, we have the 
big speech by Ayatollah Khomeini, the clerical and the charismatic leader of the revolution, to condemn women not having hijab in public institution and um, state organization. After that, a few weeks after that, I, I think it was um, the uh, 8th March of uh, 1979, yeah, uh, some 8 to, to 10,0 women came into the street to show their uh, protest against this speech because they knew from the very beginning if they go all the way this line, I mean, if they didn't show their protest, this sort of uh, Islamic rule became dominant and they had to kind of uh, follow these rules. So they came out, but it didn't go anywhere. We know now that it was the kind of uh, different fraction of revolution, not only Islamic, but also liberal, nationalists and lefties who actually didn't pay attention to women issues, to, to women uh, question, because they thought we need to compromise women um, question uh, if we want to take part in the new state. So um, after that, uh, within two years, we, we can witness that not only public institution and state organization, but also public space. In the street, you as a woman had to wear a scarf, had to have hijab if you want to c- come out of the, your home. So um, also there are other um, events that shows how the constitution of the new regime uh, is based on this suppression, I mean, suppression of women's body and sexuality. So um, a few um, months after the revolution, uh, revolutionaries actually invaded um, brutals, invaded bars, invaded pubs, invaded any place who actually carried the sign of desire and sexuality. Um, even I remember I, I, I read in the newspaper and in magazine that they put some security guard in the street to to control if your dress code kind of cope with the Islamic rule. Otherwise, you would be arrested. And um, that that's how this sort of Islamic state actually um, embodied embodied itself itself in the street, in the public space. So um, after that, you can see this sort of uh, state extend its its ideas, its kind of actualization within different institutions, like families, like schools. So in schools and within family, you have to, as a girl, you have to, follows these sort of Islamic codes. Um, oh, well, you talked about schools. I remember that um, my first year, uh, my first day at school, second year primary school, um, I wore a small scarf. And I remember that uh, at the schoolyard, uh, um, I was asked to step out and stand in front of maybe around 300 students. And the school principal started shouting at me and everybody, do not show up at school like this again. Uh, I knew that I didn't do anything wrong. Um, But I remember, I vividly remember 
all those hundreds of eyes, uh, horrified, sk- staring at me. You know, that shows to me that um, for girls uh, whose families were not religious in particular, the state primarily relied on uh, schools to impose, institutionalize, um, and even internalize hijab for young girls at a very, very young age. So they had internalized even this dominance, which is a crucial point. How about you, Sana? Do you have a similar experience to Nika's? You talked about uh, your experience, which was in 1980s. Uh, I was born in uh, 1990s. Uh, and I had absolutely a different experience. Um, when I was born at that time, uh, this idea of uh, hijab and all the rules related to that was developed, established, even uh, internalized. So it was the norm of the society in my eyes. Uh, I thought, okay, it was always like this and it's going to be like this from now on. Um, I didn't have an idea of a society which was not like this. So this was not only the norm, but also I would like to say that the government, the regime, uh, was able to uh, role play actually. So uh, after a few years, Uh, the regime learned that it cannot be very brutal the way it wants to have control on uh, women's bodies. So uh, they learned the play, actually, and they knew that they have to um, hide behind a facet so that it's not very uh, extreme or brutal. So it never became a big concern in my eyes when I was a kid or uh, when I was a teenager. But now when I think of that time, uh, I kind of feel that, okay, this was downplayed. And uh, the whole idea was that uh, hijab is not a very important concern. And you kind of should be ashamed of yourself if you uh, if you have this concern. There are much more important things that you should care about, and hijab is like not a big deal. Uh, so yeah, but now I think the mask is removed, and we can see that this was a big concern, and we need to fight for that. Yes, for years, some people were persuaded there are too many priorities, such as economic inequality, that women should protest alongside men. Thank you, Sana, for mentioning. So, as mentioned, in Iran after 1979, women were disciplined and confined in the urban space through the mandatory hijab and even restrictions on the choice of color and homogenization of appearance. This homogenization means making women invisible in public space. This control over the body from the beginning of the 1979 revolution faced frequent protests by women and activist researcher feminists, despite all the risks. With the government's insistence on homogenization, visibility in urban space found a contradictory meaning while being visible in urban space. Promotes public security, 
For women in Iran, it comes to mean a lack of security and being under the authority of others. This control is the same tool that Foucault refers to in the architecture of panopticon prisons. In this situation, Gina is subject to this control since the authority disapproves of the hijab she wears. She came to Tehran to visit. The moral police arrested her, which resulted in her death. To protest Gina's death in a society accumulated by widespread social and class inequalities that has left behind the revolts of 2017 and 2019, a nationwide uprising began in Iran, which has wide dimensions. Gina's movement, like the Aleph in Borges' story, is a point in a space that contains all other matters. Therefore, we discuss the historical context in which the current movement started. What do you think of the movement's geographic scope, depending on how they contributed to the revolution? The rising of Gina changed the political geography of Iranian cities. How do you see this? I'm glad you brought up this uh, topic, the question of geography of movement. Um, I wish to claim that um, women life freedom movement has gone beyond the well-established boundaries, class, ethnic, and gender boundaries. So, to explain this, I would like to uh, have a very short review of the three generations of protest in Iran. Um, 1990s movement, 2009 Green Movement, and uh, 2019 movement to show how the current uh, uprising, I mean, Jena uprising, has changed the very sphere of the movement. So uh, in the first generation of uh, movement in Iran in 1990s, we had uh, this sort of peripheral um, rebellious movement. So people who kind of, uh, who couldn't find any place within the, urban center, who had to find place in the periphery, in the marginalized space of uh, big cities, uh, actually came out because uh, I think it was because of the, the rise of the transportation price. So they came out and they actually called for, you know, more just uh, economic policies. So it, it it would be fair to call this uh, first generation as a, a marginalized, preferred uh, protest. So, if we continue and go to, to um, um, 2008, uh, 2009, which is quite famous as a green movement, it was a political uprising. You know, people actually, uh, it was because of the election. They thought the election has been stolen, so they came out in a big mass and they chanted for uh, political freedom, the right to vote, the right to have a, have your own representation. So it was kind of um, middle class protest. Within it was bind up within the city center, big city of Iran, like Tehran, Shiraz, Esfahan. So there were not any sign of, you know, a protest in the periphery at 2009 Green Movement. So uh, let's uh, go to 2019, when uh, the 
protest began in the again small city uh, satellite city around big cities that those people were who kind of deported from the city center because of the economic uh, difficulties so it is kind of fair to call them a poor middle class but uh, the current movement i mean the jina movement kind of go beyond all these boundaries so we have uh, we witness uh, protests in the periphery also in the city center we can see uh, some places like poor neighborhoods and also rich neighborhoods we can see people in the um, kurdish area in the arab area in the baluch in Tur different ethnicity in iran came out of um, their home and show their protest even um, different age you know different ages uh, it's quite famous that it was it belongs to um, young generation but you can see also not very young I mean those who in their were in their 30s or 40s also came out of um, uh, came into the street so I think um, the geography of these movement kind of go beyond all those famous patterns and it was a condensation of all um, suppressed uh, wants of people who has been uh, suppressed for two or three decades so the geography of current movement has been changed I believe uh, we are witnessing the emergence of the new geography of uh, urban movement in Iran uh, so this Jina movement Jina uh, revolutionary uprising is the condensation of all this satisfaction of various strata of the society which have been accumulated over the four decades uh, beginning from the establishment of Islamic regime. In addition to how the geography of the cities has changed as a consequence of their involvement in the protests, we have also observed changes in the architecture and urban planning over the recent years. Nico, what is your opinion on this? Okay, let's talk about Tehran. Um, in the last movements that Ola was talking about, um, people in Tehran uh, mainly turned to two main streets of Tehran for protesting against the state. Um, these two main streets were actually the main two axes of the city, uh, especially the east-west axis, the Engelab Street, which um, by the way means Revolution Street, especially um, provides access to three uh, main universities as well, which are main players in Iranian political landscape. Um, so with that um, new um, geography of the urban protest, uh, the state planned to change these streets. Um, so around that time, uh, they started uh, to uh, implement a bus a rapid transit system uh, along these two streets. Valias Street and Angolov Street. Um, well, these are public uh, infrastructure and provide public benefits for people effectively. Um, 
but then in the times of uh, political tensions like right now, uh, these bus lines uh, are used to um, uh, for the movement, fast movement of the uh, security services, um, plain clothes, socks, and um, armored vehicles um, to quell the protest very effectively and rapidly. Um, and also, we have another um, place along this street, uh, which is Valias Juncture, uh, which is a very iconic and very crowded uh, place. Um, the change that the state uh, made in this juncture was that it was close to pedestrians. Um, ostensibly for uh, improving the traffic jam condition. Um, but then with these changes, you see that the, the revolution street uh, is being closed and inaccessible for the revolutionaries. Um, so you see that um, what we see here is that public infrastructure became a component of the security apparatus of the state and urban planning as a mechanism at the service of a totalitarian state. That's all I can say. Can I add one thing to uh, what Nika said? Of course, please. Um, you know, uh, there, there's another example of the, the, the role of this urban design in how to control and um, surveillance on um, urban um, dwellers, you know there is a um, we have uh, squares. I mean, very, uh, squares in Iran has very historical uh, role in gathering people together. In old days, it was a place of uh, information, circulation, and everything. But new days, it was some sort of it. It kind of lost its um, historical role because of the uh, prevalence prevalence of um, cars. Uh, over a uh, pedestrian. But even in this context, those uh, the, 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 the um, urban development uh, department, I mean, uh, those uh, public institutions, has changed the design and the architecture of uh, this square. This square was kind of, uh, the, the old design was like, you could kind of roundabout the square. So when you could do this, it actually keeps some sort of those uh, role um, that I mentioned. But they actually closed the circle of the of these um, um, urban squares. So the car can't roundabout. You have to just U-turn and continue your path. So when you actually change this function, the, the, those uh, square, which historically has the reputation of gathering people in the moment of protest and uprising, has lost their function, has lost this uh, sign of protest. So in all the squares, I mean, you can't see the, the gathering of people in this Jena uprising. So that's, that's another example of how uh, urban design can control the uprising, the gathering of people in the public space. Most of this urban design change took place after the Green Movement, I think. Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, after 2009, they tried to change the urban design. Indeed, they changed the city's architecture to suppress future protests and possible uprisings. 
what was explaining um, makes so much sense to me as well that uh, urban planning, urban management serves the needs and um, the um, priorities of the regime. Uh, for me, it was uh, very much obvious in the idea of smart cities. Um, it's something very fashionable these days in the last few decades, maybe. Uh, everyone in urban planning faculties uh, and in that academic sphere uh, are talking about smart cities. It looks very cool to uh, work on that, to uh, read about this, to research on this um, issue. Uh, but there are absolutely many concerns about the idea of smart city that uh, people are also uh, talking about worldwide, uh, and it's almost about the privacy of people. But it's just about concerns and some ethical concerns, and if we really want to share our information with uh, some other people or not. But for us, in this very period, in the last few months, it was not about ethical concerns or things like that. Uh, it was much more beyond uh, concern and it was the matter of life. How? Uh, the smart city was actually a very good tool to control the whole uh, movement and the people who were against the government. So, um, when they were not there, they were there and they were watching us. Uh, wherever you are, they're like, okay, I'm also there and I'm watching you. Uh, and a very obvious uh, example is the cameras, which are all over the city. Um, and they are being developed everywhere. They have this facial recognition system. They can identify and recognize you. Um, they can track the in individuals and maybe uh, arrest them, uh, imprison them. So uh, this is how they are working and how they are helping the government to control us. Uh, another very uh, stupid example of this smart city is the text messages that we get for not wearing the hijab in our cars. You're driving and you... Uh, you don't have your scarf for a few minutes even, and then very soon uh, you get a text message with this content that, uh-uh, we saw that you didn't have this scarf. Next time you're not having the scarf, it's going to be a big deal for you. Warning! So, and the next time it's going to be a severe problem. They say that, okay, this was the crime. You repeated that and this is the crime. So everywhere we are under control and we are being watched. This is how smart cities changed its definition for me in the last two, three months. Thank you, Sano, for pointing out the suppression function of the smart city. In this sense, there are also online tools that are used to track down demonstrators. Absolutely. Um, absolutely, it is. Uh, for example, we had this Snap application, which is kind of the Iranian Uber, uh, and has become very popular lately in the last few years, especially in the uh, period of the pandemic. We all have been used to using this as something in our uh, everyday life. 
And it seems something very convenient and nothing very uh, strange. We are going from one part of the city to the another part of the city. Um, and it's not important, but we are sharing a lot of information. And the idea of smart city is based on gathering data. And what are they going to do with this big data gathered? They know where we go. Uh, they know my roots, my very everyday roots. And if I do anything wrong, they have access to all the places that I go and I can be in prison very easily. And this is the case which is happening. It's no more a theory or a concern. It's the reality of our life in the last few months. And uh, yeah, they, the, the people are in prison and uh, when they talk to them, uh, I don't know, Bosjui. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, they show the roots they have been in. Uh, why were you in that place in that time? They were a protest uh, there at the, this time of the year. Uh, what were you doing there? So this is the crime very easily. Okay. Let's talk about urban resistance. Is there a disruption in top-down dictated urban life? Is there a new way of living in cities that is being unfolded at the grassroots level, particularly for women? I would like to uh, compare um, the different conditions that we have um, before the murder of Masa Amini and after the murder of Masa Amini's. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that two different conceptualization of politics can help us explain these differences. Um, before the murder of Masa Amini, I think Asif Bayat's take on street politics explains the dominant form of resistance at the micro level of everyday life. He talks about the incremental and quiet encroachment of the marginalized, like street vendors and squatters. Well, for women, uh, they were doing the same thing. They pushed the threshold of tolerated hijab by the state bit by bit over the past four decades. Uh, but these were mostly mundane and covert resistance rather than deliberate political acts. But after Massa's Amini mur murder, I think uh, we experience what Rancier sees as politics. From his point of view, imposing hijab in public spaces was a particular social um, order. Uh, which became a natural given basis uh, for governments for the last four decades. Um, in this order, a woman without hijab had no place. She was not supposed to be seen, not supposed to be served or even imagined. For Rancier, politics involves challenging and disrupting this order of domination by making visible what has what, what had no business being seen. So when women took off their hijab, it was a Rancierian moment, which was an emancipatory change, I think. So removing the mandatory hijab by women is a collective political movement to emancipatory change. To explain that, um, maybe a good example is Hubble's book, The Power of the Powerless. Um, because we both are uh, dealing with totalitarian regimes. So, uh, like his case, uh, in Iran, most women have hijab, not because they believe in it or because everyone does it, or because that 
It is the way it had to be. They do it because they want to get on with their lives. Um, if they were to refuse, they could have been sent to jail or beaten up even to death, as the case of Masa Amini shows us. So therefore, hijab is an embodied sign um, with a very definite message. Um, it conveys how the power and the will of the state are exercised through the gendered bodies. Uh, hijab became an instrument for the state's automatic operation of the power. But then, how else ask us? Let us imagine that one day everybody drops these signs. So this is what has happened exactly after the murder of Mahsa Amini. Many women not only took off their hijab, they burned it down in many different performative ways. These performances, in fact, expose the lies behind that image of, image of the natural order, and along with it, disintegrated the image of an omnipotent state. Very interesting. I really get emotional uh, how you translated what is happening in the street with the idea of uh, uh, Havel in the book of Power of Powerless. Um, it was it was really nice. Uh, I could feel it really uh, because I feel like this is exactly what is happening. We are not tolerating those signs anymore. Um, we kind of are saying no, it's not going to be like this anymore. Uh, for example, I'm not wearing the hijab because. I want to be myself just the way I am. I don't believe in that. And I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not wearing that. Uh, and the result is that we are facing a very new landscape of uh, Iranian cities, especially in the capital, Tehran. Uh, and this is very new to me because uh, I was not in those years before the Islamic revolution. And I have never seen the cities like this. So it's totally a very new face, which is cool. It's, it's not just cool, it's very diverse and it's representing uh, the diversity and uh, the way that many people think, believe, live. Um, and yeah, so what we have experienced is that uh, your lifestyle is not acceptable and you need to hide this. Uh, but now it has changed and we want to show our lifestyle. Uh, before that, it was in our private spaces. At home, you could live the way you want. But when you come out in the public space, you should be the way that is um, acceptable from the regime. Uh, but now... It's like this that I say, no, I want public space to be the way that I want. Uh, I will not obey those rules anymore. And this is how we are building a new uh, city, maybe, uh, which is much more connected to my identity. I don't feel like an alien in the city anymore, but I really used to feel like an alien. I came out of the door of my apartment and everything was like why why are they shouting this much of propaganda and this much of uh i don't know things that mm, do not make sense to me uh they were uh, saying that 
otherness is not accepted and you should be just the way we say and now people are resisting this uh, and they are showing no we, we need in another way and that's fine and uh, it should be um i think uh, from what nika and uh, sana said we can bring up a new idea about uh, the nature of this resistance, I think. Um, now, I would like to focus on the life part of the women life freedom slogan of this uprising, because we already talk about the women part, we already talk about the freedom, but I think the life part of this slogan is the very essential, you know, of nature of this uprising. Why? Because um, I think This, these people, I mean, the, the, uh, revolu uh, the, revolution, the revolutionary subject of this uprising is quite different from those uh, three past generations which I talked about in the past, in the previous uh, section. Let me explain it. Um, we might think, or basically we used to think of the revolution, of the resistant politics, resistant action, as a, some sort of discontinuity. of life you know you stop uh, having uh, ordinary life you go to street and protest i think this current uprising gina uprising is it, it wasn't it has nothing to do with those, those sort of thing it was actually the very ordinary and everyday life of people you know they it wasn't this continuity to the life it was the continuity of the life how you know it, it was because As a revolutionary subject, you this time didn't go into the streets because you want something. You want economic needs. You want uh, political freedom. You want those things. But this time, you actually want your own way of being. So what was in struggle was the way you are, the very being of yourself was at the stake. So people... came out to show what we are. That's exactly where the, the, the nature of performativity of these uprisings is very important. Nowadays, everyone has seen the image of the protest. People goes, uh, went on the streets, uh, go up the object, show their scarf, put their scarf on the stick, and uh, singing revolutionary song. So I think it was some sort of Um, life revolution. People actually want to regain, to inappropriate their life, not only their economic needs, not only their political freedom, but also the way they want to be. That's why the idea of uh, Rancière became very important. How, when he talks about uh, demonstration, they talk about what used to be invisible, must be visible if it was it wants to be political. That's exactly what happened in Iran. People actually want to demonstrate. People actually want to show who they are. That's why they came into the street and showed those sort of you know, performance. And they actually uh, put picture from their action 
in their um, um, social medias, in their Twitter, in their Instagram accounts, because they wanted to show it, not only to act it, not only to live it, they wanted to demonstrate who they are. That's actually, I think, the differences between this um, current uprising to um, compared to those previous phases of revolutionary uprisings. How do the physical urban space and digital space interface together? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's the whole point. You know, um, at the previous times, social media didn't play a very important role because it wasn't advanced that much, at least in Europe. But this time, you have some sort of convergence between virtual space and actual space. You go to an uh, actual space, show your protest, and then uh, this disseminates your picture in the social media so everyone in the world can see who you are. That's the, that's the kind of the, um, the uh, convergence of virtual and actual in the embodiment of everyday life of Iranian revolutionary uh, protesters. Um, that's interesting. Alva talked about um, the convergence between actual and uh, virtual uh, aspects of the protest. I would like to talk about a little bit more about the actual um, aspect of the protest. Um, well, well, this time, uh, these protests were scattered around the city, um, at least in Tehran, in different neighborhoods uh, we had uh, scattered um, uh, protests. And in these protests, it was very interesting that um, the, the, the constellation of people, protesters, the street itself, uh, urban infrastructure, urban furniture, um, building fronts, walls, windows, uh, all of them um, came together and then we have um, protests that are shaped and uh, or appear or disappear and reappear in different locations in different times. Um, I would like to talk about one specific object here, which played an important role, I think, and that was uh, trash bins. Uh, when we were in the streets for a protest, uh, when we see that a trash bin is on fire, that was a signal for us. Uh, that means that the protest is going to start and we, show, we should go to that direction. Uh, and it was like a bright object, as you like, in assemblage thinking, which draws on every um, people, objects, and everything towards itself and shape an assemblage of protest. Uh, and these uh, trash bins played different roles. We had lots of uh, photos of young women uh, going up to these trash uh, bins and um, shouting and um, singing songs and leading their protests. Uh, so that was a performative aspect of these trash bins. Uh, and also um, that trash bin actually being burned with it means that it blocked the street. So the security forces could not reach to the protesters or have trouble in that, doing that. Um, so that's interesting as well, because the first person that was executed in this 
um, current uprising, uh, Mohsen Shikari was accused of blocking a street with these trash bins. And even Ali Khamenei called setting up trash bins a betrayal to the country. Um, so this reminds me of the assemblage theory and assemblage thinking that um, consider how uh, this, this assemblage is at the happenstance of people, objects, discourses, slogans, everything, uh, shape assemblages of protest in Tehran. Uh, and that, that was an interesting experience for me. As you were talking about trash bins and their new meaning, it reminded me of a scene related to the very first days of protests in Tehran. Uh, I'm trying to describe an organic social act in which trash bin took the leading role. It was very beautiful and it really meant so much to me. Let me describe it more detailed. Uh, Valiasra Street, one of the most important and iconic streets of the capital, was blocked by a trash bin. The trash bin was on fire, uh, absolutely to defend against tear gas. And there was a moment, a very special moment, that people could get together and they improvised the performance uh, around that trash bin on fire. Women started walking around the fire. They made a circle together and started singing uh, and chanting their demands. It was like a very ancient ritual. It was really legendary and yeah, uh, it didn't last more than a few minutes. But I think it was very, very powerful in terms of representing the soul of woman life freedom movement. Uh, it had all the elements. It had life, women, and freedom, and yeah, the beauty f of liberty inside that. Uh, it was very emotional for me, and I felt like we are trying to get the city back, and I felt like I belong to this city. I belong to this community. It is also mine. Before this, it was like that that we all accepted that public space is the territory of government and we have to have our life our personal life in our private spaces but now this is changing and we are trying to get the city back as i said and we are trying to give new meaning to a uh, very uh normal things of our everyday life, like trash bins, as Nika said. Can I, can I add one thing? Sure, please. Um, I think, uh, based on what Nika and um, Sana said, we now can have this kind of sort of conclusion that um, what um, came out of this revolutionary uprising is the, change, the transformation of our relation, citizens' relation to streets. I mean, my own relation with street has been changed. You know, no, from from then on, from then on, I think it's it's my streets. I walk with more confidence. I kind of speak with the street with the strain. I kind of feel okay. Cars, you have to stop. It's my priority to cross the street, and then you because it's you know it's different. People 
actually has been afraid of a street. You know, they think, okay, that's car. I'm not. I'm going. Uh, I'm not crossing. So also, I mean, um, the, the experience of girls, I think, has been changed. Uh, their relation to streets changed. As uh, if you ask Nico and Sana about the sexual assault. I think it's, 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 the, the, the pattern is changed, right? Do you think so? I do. I, I do believe that it has uh, changed uh, and it's obvious. I can see that. I can track that. Um, people are much more sensitive about what they say, how they react. I hear that much more often that people say, okay, this was not sexually correct or this was not politically correct, but this was not a matter maybe uh, before this. But now people are really sensitive. They care what they say, how they react so that uh, it has no uh, judgment, uh, which is related to sexuality or stuff like this. And I love this change. I think this is one of the uh, benefits of this movement that nothing can change. This is something sustainable, this change. I think so. Because of all these pressures we have faced with urban alienation over the years. But the movement with these bottom-top changes made a revolution there. So, in this episode of the Urban Political Podcast, we discussed that this outburst resulted from 43 years of gender discrimination and economic, social, and political exploitation of different Iranian groups through implementing the regime's interpretation of Islamic law. We discussed Gina's movement has been unprecedented, identified even as a revolution, as it is a battle to make out progressive alternatives. Started in a small Kurdish city, not in Tehran, and then Jen Jian Azadi was shouted in the streets of Persian central cities, in Tabriz, Turkish city, and in the most distant cities of center, in Baluchistan. And how materiality, the body, gender, sexual orientation came to the core of the revolution discussion in this part of the world. We discuss how this uprising has repositioned the political geography of Iran, how the city is integrating Iranians in order to bring about radical political change, how the slogan of woman, life, freedom is being materialized on these streets. Also, we shared our exercise of resistance as citizens and some grassroots activities in the last couple of months. Let me ask my friends one last question as a conclusion or even their vision for the future of this rebellion for freedom. Avar Pilis. Uh, yeah, I would like to talk about the relation between Iran and West. You know, what strikes me uh, was like when the Western gaze saw the picture of Iranian revolution, it was I got this feeling that Western would say, wow, Iranian or Middle Eastern girls are so brave, so avant-garde, so progressive, as if their previous 
image of Iranian or Middle Eastern girl was those stereotype that okay those who are stuck in the how in you know in their houses doing some you know uh, daily routine homeworks. Um, I I got the feeling that how could it be some sort of reverse orientalism you know that you now because of the uh, social media because of iranian revolutionary image has gone uh, global now you uh, face with the new image of uh, uh, middle eastern girls so i i i began thinking why it happened and i reached the conclusion that for the, some good decades, Iranian relation with the Western uh, journals, medias, academics has been blocked because, you know, we, we, we kind of know about the um, uh, geopolitical stuff, Iranian, Western, international relations. So we didn't have those sort of trans, um, transmission of information, students, um, conference. Um, I hope these was the begin is the beginning of the new relation between Iran and West. So Iranian context, Iranian uh, history can contribute to the uh, urban studies, urban uh, literature, because we have the unique uh, history. I mean, every place has its own unique um, history, but Iranian has experienced some sort of Islamic polit- political Islam, so which kind of changed the atmosphere of. Um, urban space and also urban politics, so it could contribute to the, the to to enrich the um, urban literature and also urban literature, urban global literature can contribute to the way we understand, we reflect on ourselves. You know, the concept, the universal concept of urban politics can, could also change our mindset, could change our the way we understand, the way we. Um, realize what we are so that's my imagination for the future the kind of interconnection between iranian context historical context and western literature can i add that uh, the same thing uh, is correct about post-colonial feminist studies and feminist studies of the global south uh, so I think now it's the time to rethink this literature in the light of this women life freedom movement. Um, I think this was the most difficult question of uh, this talk, uh, because I think the last few months has been very intense. And whenever I talk about what has happened uh, lately, I'm like, wow, how much, how many things, how many events, how many, uh, yeah, that's too much. And adding something to that is always very, very difficult because whenever I talk about this, I feel like, okay, I've missed that. I've missed this one as well. This one was more important. But anyhow, I, I want you to know that we are talking in this context, which is really, really intense. Uh, but yeah, um, what was really uh, uh, inspiring, I would say, for me uh, in the last few months was this idea that we care about each other. Um, what I mean is that, okay, we were all chanting woman, life, freedom. Uh 
we all think that okay, we know what freedom is, but when you really chant it, uh, you start rethinking about it and finding the new meaning of that. And in this new meaning, what was really interesting for me is that we are finding out how collective this idea of freedom is, and. I cannot be free. I cannot be free until other people are also free. And this liberty, this idea of freedom is a collective fight that we are all uh, trying for that. For example, if uh, they have something in mind in Kurdistan, which maybe does not make sense to me. Uh, but now I understand that, okay, until they are not free, I'm also not free, and their problem is also my problem, and we can spread that worldwide, and yeah, we're all connected to each other if we really want to get to this idea of freedom. Exactly, Sana. Thank you. I would also like to thank Nika and Ava. It was a fantastic talk. And last but not least, we would like to thank Urban Political Podcast for giving us their platform as a safe and secure space and for being supportive and understanding along the way. Zen 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 Zen